Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How often have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or that topic or thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just sit down with him and talk about all the stuff that didn't quite make it into the homily? Well, this podcast is for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, to their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're in every Sunday in the pew or a Christmas and Easter, or maybe you can't even remember the last time you went to Mass, we're here for you. So Father Daniel Scheitz, the pastor, among other things, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, at St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Well, Father Dan, welcome back to After the Homily with, you know, our guest, you. <laughs> Great to be here. You know, today we're going to talk about seasons and that expression, seasons of the church. And I've heard you speak on it before, as many of our listeners have. But what do we actually mean when we say seasons of the church? Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we read that there's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And in the most obvious sense, we're built into a, a world of changing seasons. At least in Indiana, we have spring, summer, winter, and fall. And the whole natural order of, of fertility, of, of life and death, is part of something larger than any given creature. And that elemental truth is taken into a different dimension with the coming of Christ into time. So God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ both enters time and, and transforms it. So we say at the Easter vigil that Jesus Christ yesterday and today, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, all time and all ages belong to him. So fundamentally, the seasons of the church are our living of Christ's time. It's a, it's a following of Christ through the calendar year, orienting our lives, not primarily in terms of the interrelation of the sun and the earth, although that's taken up into it, but, but actually our relation with the Lord of time himself, which is just extraordinary and, and paradoxically, even more deeply humanizing. <laughs> so, you know, just to be organized, what are the seasons of the liturgical year? So in normally four-week season of Advent, we're preparing for the coming of the Lord. So we're preparing for the, the incarnation, God made flesh to become visible and in a sense, Advent is telescoping all of human history, its longings, desires, leading up to the birth of the Savior. The Christmas season, most famously the 12 days of Christmas, would be our celebration of the Lord's nativity. Not restricted to a day, but, but really given its full celebration in that season. 
then follows a period of, of ordinary time. We can think of that as the hidden years that Christ spent at Nazareth, the 30 years in the home of Mary and Joseph. And then with the beginning of Lent at Ash Wednesday and the, the going of Christ into the, the wilderness of the, the desert, we see a, a new preparation to follow him into his public ministry, which culminates in his passion, death, and resurrection. So at the, uh, at the end of, of Lent is, is Holy Week and what's called the Sacred Triduum, the Holy Three Days of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, which lead to Easter Sunday. And then the 50 days of the Easter season, celebrating Christ's victory over sin and death. And the end of that Easter season is the Feast of Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit of the risen Lord, the missionary mandate of the church to bring the good news of Christ to all the nations until the end of time. And so that takes us through the remainder of the calendar year and the final year, the final week of the church's liturgical year is the feast of Christ the King. And that, that is the, the end of time before the end of the calendar year. And after that, that feast, the week afterward, then begins the season of, of Advent all over again. I like the way you say that because I think it's easy to think we just have really Advent and Lent with a lot of ordinary days in the middle. But that's not true. I mean, there's some ordinary time breaks. But yet, you know, as you point out so nicely, there's everything flows into the next thing culminating in, in the end of the year. Yes. And I should point out that ordinary doesn't mean banal. In a fundamental way, it has to do with a fundamental order of life. And when a husband and wife, for example, think about the ordinary days of their life as they look back on them, it's it's really with with great deep joy that that, that we've had this this beautiful time together. In our world of gadgets, we we tend to live dominated by the things that we make. And, and a lot of us tend to always be on the lookout for the next flashy or dramatic thing. But, but deep down, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we were made for the ordinary life, ordinary exchanges of love, which of course Christ renders extraordinary. You know, I can't help but think about a very special friend of mine and yours, who was very ill during the pandemic and almost died during the pandemic. And when he came out of a coma, he really struggled to understand what was real and what wasn't real. It, was he dreaming or was this actual? And I heard him say in a very articulate way, what saved him was the ordinary. Yes. Those day-to-day things of getting up and dressing and going somewhere, they're not special necessarily, but if you're having a hard time understanding reality, it was very special because they were so concrete and so real. Yes, that's very profound. And in fact, the church's liturgical year exists to help us distinguish reality from illusion because left to ourselves, we, we would adopt the logic of, of the machine and just work ourselves to death or 
or fritter our time away, you know, entertainment to entertainment and less and less return on that. So the, the following of Christ through time actually gives us an experience of heaven on earth. So we, we actually are able to taste in time something of, of the joy of eternity. So when our friend came back from that coma, he received his whole life back again. And so he, he's able to look at it from the standpoint of, I passed through what felt like death and now I've been given everything back again. And, and so the, the church's liturgical year is, is that experience of living as if everything and more has been given back to us again. Maybe just a minute or two, because I know that you like detail, um, about the colors of the season. So when we're walking into Mass, what is our, what's our best indicator of what season that we're in based on the colors and the decorations? Yes. So I suppose we can start with the green of ordinary time. So we, we say in the creed that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And so the, the color of, of so many living things, at least those with chlorophyll, is green. And so after Pentecost, the color is, is green. The, the seasons of penance and preparation, so Advent and Lent, are purple. And a helpful way, especially for Advent, to think of that color is in light of the color of the night sky just before the dawn. So it's where darkness gives way to its, its first light. But even before the sun is coming up from under the horizon and at the center of each of the two seasons, Advent and Lent, at the center on the, the Sunday called Gaudete in Advent and Laetare in Lent, both of those are, are Latin verbs bidding us to rejoice there's the color rose, which is the color of the rising sun. It, it just means that we've reached the midpoint of our preparation and the son of justice, Jesus Christ, is, is set to be born at the conclusion of Advent and is set to rise from the dead at the conclusion of Lent and the sacred triduum. So the most sacred feasts, the most celebratory feasts, always have white or gold because that's the color of the Lord's glory, so to speak. It contains all the other colors. And so during the Christmas season, during the Easter season, during the, the feasts and memorials of many of the saints who aren't martyrs, uh, the color is white. In fact, the color white can be worn at any mass in, in a pinch because the Lord is risen, his glory last forever. The other liturgical color red is for martyrs feasts, mm. feasts of the recalling of the Lord's passion. For example, the, the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross or on Good Friday, the color is red. And then at, at Pentecost, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Well, so we've, we've made our way through the liturgical year. Let's focus on you know where we are today, just beginning our second week of, of Advent. So in a real definitional sort of way, I guess, 
for maybe our less than perfectly catechized listeners, of which I'm a member, or for our Protestant listeners. What what really is Advent? Because before I was Catholic, maybe I knew what an Advent wreath was. It was just something that was used in decoration. But help listeners understand really what is Advent. So the word itself, Adventus, refers to our being directed toward the Lord's coming. It's the season of deepened preparation for the coming of the Lord. And the church observes this vigil, both for the coming of the Lord at the end of time, as well as the coming of the Lord at at Christmas. So the observance of, of his nativity, which happened in time, but is is eternally new. And and of course it's a it's a training in our vigilance for the Lord's coming at any moment. In in the end, for for each of us to be called at an hour in a day, uh, not of our choosing, to go to meet the Lord in our death, our sharing in the Lord's death. But but more ordinarily, just our keeping a vigilant heart for the Lord's coming today. So it's a special season of of training. And as the liturgy says, uh, waiting in joyful hope. So in, in preparation, a season of preparation. So in your homily last weekend, you, my words, not yours, talked about the importance of doing a good advent, if you will, or to make a good preparation for Christmas. Practically speaking, what do you, what do you mean a good advent? Well, it's, it's a very common temptation that we have to want to jump the gun and so a little child, for example, doesn't want to wait until Christmas, wants to open those presents right away. And the fact that we're slowed down and we have to learn how to wait, how to, how to prepare, at a, at a basic level, it's, it's a training in not getting what we want on our terms and on our timetable. So that that's a very basic level of dying to oneself in order to to live for for Christ and and the things of Christ. So in that sense advent has a a penitential quality to it uh, advent in that we're actually leaving our ordinary life and and some of its habits behind to to enter a, a, a different rhythm. So traditionally, Advent has involved some type of fasting. I know many in the United States will find this unusual, but but in most other parts of the world, this is a season in which the the taking of food and drink is typically reduced to whatever the mission requires. And so there are a number of feasts during Advent in which the church bids us celebrate. For example, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, of of Mary being conceived as the new Eve, of the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, a number of other feasts. But, But generally speaking, it's a season of more sober 
preparations. And whatever practices we can undertake for, for our intake of food and drink to, to serve our longing for the, the Christmas season, all of that is to the good. So the reason the church has the extended Christmas season, so the 12 days of Christmas, is precisely for us to begin the serious feasting then rather than do it too soon. And then by the time December 25th comes, we're all burnt out and ready to move on. I mean, that's very countercultural, though. Of course. I mean, especially in America, we feast in preparation for Christmas. Yes. We certainly don't fast in preparation for Christmas. Correct. Correct. <laughs> but the, the practices that, that Americans observe of, of identifying good things that those they love would, would find enjoyable and, and to make the sacrifices to, to obtain those gifts and then to wait for the giving of those gifts. That, that's actually much closer to the heart of, of how the, the Christ child is honored. So, you know, it sounds so much like Lent, doesn't it? Listening to you describe. So what parallels do you, do you make between the preparation for Christmas through Advent and the preparation for Easter and the resurrection through Lent? Yes. So Advent is a season of desire, waiting to, to see the great giver of all gifts, Christ himself. Whereas Lent is, is following this gift, Jesus Christ, where, where he leads us. And it's very interesting if you look at how the Gospels describe Christmas, they're actually doing it as a, a foreshadowing of Easter. So Jesus, who's born in a cave at Bethlehem, is laid to rest as a crucified corpse in the cave of, of the garden. Mary, who holds Jesus in her arms as his mother, points the way to Mary Magdalene, who will hold the body of Jesus in preparation for his burial. Joseph of Nazareth, who cares for the helpless body of the infant Lord, points the way to Joseph of Arimathea, who will also care for the helpless body of Christ as the corpse. The angels are present, declaring glory to God in the highest, to the shepherds over Bethlehem. The angels are there at the tomb, announcing that he's risen, he's not here, and bidding the women to go to the shepherds with that good news. The wise men bring the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to baby Jesus. And the women bring the, the oils of anointing and, and discover they're, they're not needed. The Lord has other gifts for them. And, and so the church has meditated on this connection between the birth and the death and resurrection of Christ because Christ was born to die. He was born to give his life so that we might have eternal life. So one way of thinking of, of Advent is as a pre-Lent 
in one way of thinking of Christmas as a pre-Easter. In fact, the greatest gift that Christ gives at Christmas is the gift of Easter, eternal life, because we get all the gifts back again that we received before that. That's really beautiful. They are so similar, especially when you, when you when you lay it out like that. It's easy, I guess, especially because we're so westernized to think of, well, Christmas is fun and it's a celebration and, and Easter's sad because somebody dies. <laughs> but that's far too simplistic. And the links between the two really are remarkable. Well, it happens, I'm sure it will happen to me this Advent. It happens to me every Advent that I think this is going to be different, this Advent. Now, this one I'm going to get right. I'm going to do a good job and prepare for this one. And then I usually find myself at the Christmas Eve vigil thinking, well, next year. Sure. (laughs) I'll do better next year. But help listeners with some ideas. How can we do a great Advent this year? So, first of all, and some of this will sound familiar from my homilies, I think the first basic thing we can do is just clean out our homes. We have too many things and those things can get in the way of of the things of the Lord. So those things that are helpful for our mission, we keep those and use those. Those things that interfere with our mission or just would be more useful for other people, we, we give those away. I think so, Father Andrew used to say, if, if you go through your closet and you haven't worn it in two years, it should go. Time to go. <laughs> the second thing is to actually prepare our hearts to clean out our hearts. So the the sacrament of confession during Advent is especially good and necessary to receive the Lord's mercy in the sacramental form in which he wants to give it. So Jesus entrusts the keys of the kingdom to Peter of binding and loosing sin so that we can really claim Christ as our savior anew. And Jesus is actually born in the the stable of Bethlehem because he wants to take on himself the filth and stink of our sins. So to make a good confession during Advent, that'd be a second great way to prepare. A third way to prepare would be actually to look ahead to the 12 days of Christmas and make provision for those. So write them out December 25th to January 5th and in prayer, Ask the Lord, what is, what is a good way for me to celebrate each of those days? Who have I neglected during the year? Who have I promised to spend some time with or call? And, and to really think ahead rather than just aiming for the December 25th blowout and, and then throw the Christmas tree away. December 26th. That's a tragic thing. It, you should keep it up until the, the Feast of, of the Epiphany. So that's well into January, and it's traditionally been the, the 12th day of Christmas. I also think, for lack of a better word, radical charity, which is to say, extending the love of Christ materially, spiritually, beyond our ordinary circle of people beyond our family, our friends, the people we like. So at the heart of Christmas is extraordinary good done to strangers or extraordinary good shining in exceedingly difficult circumstances. 
So, for example, on Christmas Day at St. Vincent's, many people don't know this, but for years, Rosie Munson and her family have hosted all sorts of people who have nowhere else to go for Christmas. They host them on Christmas Day. And so our, our cafeteria is filled with all sorts of people as this kind of you know, do-it-yourself family and just feasting together. So if, if we really want to get to the heart of Christmas, we're going to be thinking of how we can extend the Lord's goodness in new ways to, to strangers. We have people in our parish who've developed the custom of delivering small gifts and going Christmas caroling on Christmas Eve or other days throughout Christmas. So it, that too is a very public manifestation, almost like the angels announcing to the shepherds, this fact is at the center of, of everything. That's quite an assignment list. Oh, and I'm, let me just wrap it up with the one that makes all of those possible. We actually have to simply stop what we're doing and enter into contemplative silence. The hardest of all. The hardest of all. And if it means you know turning on the music that helps us enter into prayer as we look at the Christmas tree, we kind of drift off, that's the start of just contemplative prayer where we're just asking the Lord how he wants to reorder our life in view of his greater joy. If, if we don't have contemplative solitude, we will be swept away by the superficiality and, and we will suffer burnout. And, and the end of that cul-de-sac is just getting depressed because we have all these expectations. They're not fulfilled we, we drown in nostalgia that the earlier Christmases were better than our current Christmases. And, and it's just a disaster. So start with the silent night and when work I, out from there. When I think of those moments, maybe an hour, immediately following the Christmas Eve vigil, it's late, it's one o'clock in the morning almost. It's usually cold, at least here in Indiana. And, you know, we go home and there's really nothing to do. Yes. I mean, it isn't Christmas but yet there's nothing to do in terms of preparation. And in my own family, that's where we've tended to have some eggnog and just some relatively quiet. Yes. But of course, you have to drag yourself to the Christmas Eve vigil if you want. Well, that brings <laughs> up a good point. So when I was growing up in ancient times, there were no masses before the great vigil of Christmas. And so as a concession to human weakness, the church in recent decades has provided for these earlier Christmas Eve masses, which I, I, I have to say are not ideal and in a lot of ways, not spiritually helpful. Traditionally, the, the church has begun the vigil of Christmas late into the night and continued to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day. So traditionally, there are three masses that are considered the most important. So the, the great vigil of Christmas, what we think of as midnight mass, the mass at dawn on Christmas Day, and then mass at midday on Christmas Day. So at St. Vincent's, we have the Christmas Eve mass at 11 p.m. That would be the great vigil of Christmas. 
a 9 a.m. mass would be, so to speak, the mass at dawn, and then the 11 a.m. would be the midday mass. And each of those have different readings, a different flavor to them, but I would I would strongly recommend that families invest both in the great vigil of Christmas and in mass on Christmas day. I I think that would be a a game changer for families. Unlike most of our holidays where the vigil replaces the, the feast day itself. Uh, well, the vigil is considered the beginning of the feast. So in that sense, it is the greatest celebration. But uh, even with the Easter vigil, many people also come the next day, especially the newly baptized and confirmed because this just has to be celebrated over and over again. So there's no, there's no requirement to do that. But, but when you're madly in love, you just love to do things over and over again. And I'll put a plug in for the for the the vigil mass. I mean, we've always done it, even with small children. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, we would do it when our kids are older, we'll do it. They're too small. To them, I usually say, just bring them. They'll fall asleep. It's late. Yes. Lots of people are there with small children and infants that sleep in the pews, which maybe is part of the magic of Oh, it's evening. so beautiful. Um, it's so beautiful. It is a terrific, it's a terrific mass, and it really does set that that silent night sort of tone. That's beautiful. And then, personally, I haven't thought of coming again on Christmas Day, but thanks to you, we'll have to think about working that into our tradition. And the truth is, because the Christmas Day masses tend to be less attended than the earlier ones, it, it's just a, a more peaceful experience of, of prayer. You can actually breathe rather than be part of a cattle drive. But the large numbers, it, it's beautiful too on, on Christmas Eve because it, it gives us the feel of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem with all of the crowds and not finding room in the inn. Which would not have been a peaceful experience. In a worldly <laughs> sense, not at all. It's funny, I, I, someone one Christmas Eve at that vigil, I said, this must be what heaven is like. And this person said, well, I pray not. I hope it's much less noisy and much more organized than this. <laughs> but but I, I think he may be wrong. I think it may be just like that. With the Lord, a spontaneity and a joyful noise is coincident with, with ordered prayer. <laughs> well, as we're wrapping up our, our Advent preparation, so to speak, what, uh, what final thoughts do you have? We start this second week of Advent to help our listeners prepare the way for the Christ child. Really, it's only one bit of advice, and it is to make a very conscious act of faith that our celebration of Christmas this year is not fundamentally an act of nostalgia in which we're simply looking back and making comparisons. It's actually our celebration of the Lord's preparing all of the Christmases of our life in the past for the new joy of this one here. So in that sense, the, the traditional carol, the 12 days of Christmas, is, is really appropriate because on the 12th day of Christmas, you get all the other gifts of the past back again, but in view of, of a fullness that only arrives now. And 
Christmas is always oriented toward the future. We've been given the gift of our life. We've been given the gift of the Lord's life. And he is at the end of time, even as he remains the beginning of time, he's at the end of time cheering us on, bidding us celebrate the new gifts of this year, giving them to new people, and and making sure that Christmas is only expanding into the future. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for the time, and thank you for these Advent and seasonal thoughts. What a joy. What a joy to the world. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation of After the Homily as much as I have. I hope you'll plan to join us regularly, and I hope you'll tell all your friends to join us as well. Are there topics you'd like to hear from Father Dan about? Do you have a question that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org. That's S-A-I-N-T-V dot O-R-G. And type after the homily in the subject. Or you can text me directly at 260-450-8878. And please text or start the message with after the homily. Well, thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt.